Welcome and thank you for joining us today for our fourth webinar in our Exploring Next Generation Education series at the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation. I'm Heller Spires, Executive Director of the Friday Institute and one of your co-hosts today um, as we discuss becoming an anti-racist English language arts teacher. In light of the recent murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Richard Brooks, and many more black people, Americans, especially white Americans, are undergoing a rapid education on the burdens black, brown, and indigenous people carry with them every day. This education is ongoing. We at the Friday Institute, like many organizations across the nation and the world, are seeking ways to take individual as well as collective action to become anti-racist. We think that teaching for an anti-racist future can start with educators. According to a new paper written by three North Carolina State College of Education Assistant Professors of English Education, Drs. Michelle Falter, Chandra Alston, and Crystal Lee, I quote, an anti-racist educator must actively work to dismantle the structures, policies, institutions, and systems that create barriers and perpetuate race-based inequities for people of color, end of quote. Today's webinar, inspired by this paper and featuring two of its authors, will focus on how to actively move forward toward anti-racist English language arts teaching. Now, I'd like to introduce my co-host for today, Dr. Jose Picard. He's also the deputy director at the Friday Institute for Educational Innovation and a professor of counselor education in the College of Education. Jose, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Hey, thank you very much, Heather, and good morning, everyone. It's my pleasure to briefly, uh, well, not only to just co-host, but to also to briefly uh, introduce our panelists. So our first panelist this morning is Dr. Michelle Falter. Dr. Falter is an assistant professor of English education, teacher education, and learning sciences in the College of Education at North Carolina State University. Dr. Falter will be followed by Mr. James Daniel. James Daniel is from Selma, North Carolina. James is an undergraduate student at North Carolina State University, and he is studying middle grades English and social studies. Welcome. Third to speak will be Ms. Jada Smith. Ms. Jada Smith is a seventh grade English and social studies teacher at Northern Guilford Middle School. Ms. Smith is an undergraduate, uh, 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 attended North Carolina State for her undergraduate, where she earned a Bachelor of Science in middle grade arts and social studies education. Welcome, Jada. Our final panel, panelist to speak will be Dr. Crystal Lee. And Dr. Crystal Lee is an assistant professor of English education, teacher education, and learning studies in the College of Education at North Carolina State University. Uh, it's great to see you, Crystal. Uh, welcome and thank you for being here. So let's get right into it. Let's, uh, let's begin with our first panelist, Dr. Michelle Falter. Welcome everybody. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Um, first of all, uh, I just wanna start with an acknowledgement that uh, we live in a racist society. And I wanna start with that acknowledgement because everything that we're going to be talking about today is about how do we work against the policies, the structures in place that uphold racist ideologies. And um, I think that as teachers, that we need to be actively a part of this process of dismantling practices that harm students, particularly students that are black and other um, students of color. And I also want to acknowledge that I have a lot of privilege talking to you today. I am a white woman. Um, I have lived my life uh, surrounded by a lot of other white people 
like many white educators, I grew up in um, a small town that was predominantly white. My life um, was surrounded by people and voices that were not diverse. And it has taken me a very long time. It's been a process of discovery and learning to work towards becoming an anti-racist educator. And so the work that we're talking about today um, with my colleague Chandra and Crystal is work that needs to be done and it needs to include all voices. It needs to include teachers of color. It needs to include activists of color. It needs to include scholars of color. And so when I talk today, um, I'm hoping to decenter myself, um, but also to share my perspective as a way to help you many of you who are listening are probably also white educators and are looking for strategies and ways to be better at this work. Anti-racist work is not passive work, it's active work. It's work that's going to be something that you do from now until we've, we've um, combated racist, racism in our society. And I don't think that that's gonna happen anytime soon I wish it would, but I, I think this is something we're going to be having to work on for a long time. Um, in our paper, we talk about a process that teachers can go through, whether you're a white educator, a black educator, or another educator of color. There are lots of things that we can do to actively move forward. And I think the first step is really being um, self-reflective and doing some self-evaluation. And in that process, we need to be good listeners. We need to listen to people who are not like ourselves. I cannot imagine what it's like to be in a black body. I'm not, um, I'm a, a white person. So I need to listen to other people's experiences as a part of this pro process of becoming anti-racist. And I think part of that process is really thinking about the practices in our classroom that may have caused our students harm. And as an educator, we don't wanna think that we could possibly cause um, our students harm, but there are practices that do. And we need to really think about how am I upholding racist ideologies through the text I use in my classroom, through the different types of activities I'm doing, because we don't want to cause our students harm. We want to celebrate them. We want them to succeed. And there may be things in place that are not allowing that to happen. And as a white educator, we have to own up to those practices and say, yes, I did do some harm, but now I'm going to do better. I think the problem is, is when teachers, when we dig our heels in and we say, you know, like, oh, I didn't mean to, or that wasn't my intention. But that to me is not really actively listening and really thinking about how to do better as an educator. When you know that you've done something wrong, you need to fix it and you need to do better. And so anti-racist educators have to constantly think about their practices and really ask yourself, where am I causing harm? How would I feel if I were a black student in my class? How would I feel if I were an Asian student in my class? How would I feel if I were a student who's learning um, English language for the first time? You have to put yourself in your student's shoes and ask that. And I also think, that we need to move beyond just kindness and empathy. I think those are really great starting points that we want to be kind and we want to be empathetic educators, but it needs to move beyond that to action and in interrogating and changing some practices. So we talk a lot in, in um, the documents about the importance of reading um, and really learning and listening to other scholars and educators. And when I say read things, um, there's been lots of lists out there, but we talk about particular books um, within English language arts education that you should read. And they are mostly by um, educators of color. So we want you to read black voices. We want you to read other people's points of view that are different from your own. And I also wanna say that part of being an anti-racist educator is decentering whiteness. Our whole society is built around white ideals. As I said, I grew up in a very small town. Most of us were white. And, um, and so I had a tunnel vision 
of what America was because I wasn't surrounded by diversity. And when I went to college, that's when I began to listen and hear other voices and experience that the world wasn't just this one way. It wasn't this white centered way. There's so many different voices and perspectives that makes America very special. And we need to do better decentering us. And that starts by looking at texts in our classroom. It starts with, are all of the books in my classroom by white authors? Are the characters in the books white um, children or white adults? Um, if I do have characters of color in my stories, uh, is it always about black trauma? Or are we celebrating black joy, black excellence? Um, are we um, sharing stories with our students from authors of color, not just stories about um, uh, people of color, but that is actually from their own voice. We need to have these experiences in the classroom and interrogate, like I said, the practices that don't allow students to succeed. So things like thinking about who's in our honors classes and really taking a look at who's in our AP or IB classes and, and how can I make sure that my black students uh, are just as successful in my English class as any other student. So these are some of the things that, um, that I think are really important for us. And I'm gonna let some of the other teachers um, talk a little bit more. Thank you. Taylor, you're muted. Thank you, Michelle. Um, we appreciate your insights and your comments, especially with the concept of decentering whiteness, um, whether it's within our society at large, but then especially within the classroom, since we know that most of the teaching population now is white and white females. So thank you for those insights. We're gonna to move to James now. And James, um, as Jose mentioned, is an undergraduate student and he's um, working on his middle grades degree in English language arts and social studies. James, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the ideas you have in terms of um, promoting and becoming an anti-racist English language arts teacher? Yes, ma'am, I would love to do that. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Y'all make me feel so good about myself. But um, so I know today that we are talking about how do we become um, anti-racist ELA teachers. And I think the first thing that I want to do before I go into that is sort of like define that. And I want to define it as not being so different um, from being a good teacher. I think that we oftentimes, especially when we have seminars like this, when we have we have different um, ideas or we have different like parts of classes where we talk about this is how you include more black voices, more voices from indigenous folks. Then we talk about like, this is a like section of teaching. However, this should embody teaching. This is talking about valuing people, valuing their lives, their traditions and their cultures. So I think that being a good teacher and being an anti-racist teacher should be synonymous. I don't think that when we start to have this conversation, though I am grateful for this panel, and I, I, I think it's long overdue. Um, and I think, you know, it wouldn't have been organized in a time like this if we didn't all agree that this is long overdue because this current climate has galvanized it, but this has been an issue that's been ongoing for so long, having marginalized people because of different systems and systems of oppression, that this is something that we need to continue to talk about. So in order for us to be, anti-racist educators, we need to understand that that means that that's what, that's part of what makes us good educators. And I also believe that in order to be an anti-racist educator, the same way that as many of us who do teach, we know that education permeates who we are as a being, as we go even to coffee shops or as we communicate with other people, then being an anti-racist as a person has to then permeate our being and as we 
go out and we start having these different conversations about what it means to be anti-racist or even when we hear certain comments in the small everyday things in our lives that we have to live an anti-racist lifestyle in order to bring that into the classroom like it shouldn't just be an it shouldn't just be an argument and shouldn't just be a few articles it shouldn't just be one book that we have from a black voice one book that we have from a latinx voice we need to continue to live this in our daily lives and i think that when i say that to a lot of my personal colleagues or when i say that to people who ask me the question i think the common thing is well i don't know where to find it and i'm not sure what you know what resources to go to i'm not sure who to ask well that's what we're here for. And when I hear that from educators, I get a little bit discouraged because I feel as though it's our job to seek out these resources. I feel like if we have something we want to know and we need to communicate to our students, it is our job to seek out resources, whether it be people, whether it be articles, whether it be books. And I think I am coming I'm coming to the point where I'm realizing the excuses for not knowing should be that I am learning and should no longer be, I don't know where to find it. It can, you can ask, where can I find these resources? But I think we are moving, especially most definitely as ELA teachers um, and as educators in general, I think we need to start moving away from, I don't know, because I can't find it to a more, if you will, growth mindset view of, I don't know because I'm learning it right now. Can you help me get to this point? Can you help me get to this benchmark? I'm struggling with this. So I think we need to start with that view of it. To be an anti-racist educator is to be a good educator. That is how we're defining that. And I think with specifically with ELA and with social studies, which I am also getting um, specialized in, I think we focus heavily on narrative. That is something that is huge in ELA. That's all we do is we dissect narratives. We figure out how to communicate our personal, our personal ideas in a different languages or different ways in order to get people to understand what we are trying to say or what we feel. And so I think that the goal of an anti-racist ELA teacher is because as a regular, just ELA teacher, our job description is that we are giving students the tools to both understand and communicate stories via writing, speaking, visuals, and critical thinking. So then being an anti-racist ELA teacher is not much different. We're using those same tools to dismantle systems of oppression that negatively impact all of us, but especially and most importantly, those that those systems oppress. And so I think that when we define being an anti-racist educator this way, when we define being an anti-racist ELA educator this way, there are certain there are certain requirements, yes, but there are certain things that you will do in your classroom as a result that you cannot avoid once you have this view of education. And so a couple of those that I that really hit home for me personally is reading, well, first, before we get to even the literature itself, having the literature in your class to be able to have these conversations. Because I think a problem that we're starting to have, especially now with this climate, a lot of teachers are, again, they're coming and this is not a problem. It's okay to admit when you don't know things, but a lot of teachers are coming and they're saying, well, I'm not quite sure how to have these conversations. And that is a fair thing. If you do not know how to have those conversations, then you come to someone, you come to someone who knows how to have those, uh, those conversations, or you come to resources on how to have those conversations. However, this is not the first time that you should be having this kind of conversation in your classroom. The first time that we are reading a book or even exploring the idea of police brutality against people of color, especially black people, um, it should not be during February or should not be when something like a George Floyd happens. And the first time that we hear about any of the Hispanic revolutionaries should not be during the month of October. The first time that we hear an LGBTQ voice should not be when we hear 
about Sandra Bland from somewhere. That should not be the first time that we're having these conversations in our classrooms. We should not only be providing the literature that is necessary for us to have these conversations in our classrooms, but we should be continuously having these conversations with our colleagues, continuously having these conversations with our friends, continuously having these conversations for me with our professors like Dr. Fulton. And we should continue to do these things in our daily lifestyle as the educators that we claim to be in order to then bring it into the classroom and then scaffold that way. Because it shouldn't be the first time for our students either. Like having this conversation about police brutality, again, should not be the first time for our students when a George Floyd happens or when a Tamir Rice happens or when a Sandra Bland happens. This should have been an ongoing conversation and that's part of being an anti-racist anti educator because I think what is so important about the idea of scaffolding, which scaffolding for those who are not educators are basically like what you do the steps that you take in order to gain mastery of a certain topic or a certain idea or a certain concept. So you don't just present everything at once, you give maybe certain ideas or ways to get into it, like articles or books. And I think what's so important that we need to do with that, the concept of scaffolding is that you gain a better mastery of something when you start doing it earlier. And so if we start these conversations at the beginning of the year of these are things that affect people, these are issues that continue to affect people. Then when we have this conversation, when something like a George Floyd happens, it's like, do you remember when? Because when you can draw on that prior knowledge, then students are more likely to be like, oh my gosh, I get it now. Or at least, oh my gosh, this is a problem and I want to understand more. They become more excited because they're like, I know this. I can do this. And that's, that's our job as educators, to make our students feel as though they can do this and they can have these conversations. And that's what we want to do. Truly being an anti-racist, to have an anti-racist future, future, it starts with the educators. And so those are a few things that I feel like are very important. But I think the main thing that I want us to take away from this is that being an anti-racist educator is a lifestyle of working against systems um, that just systematically um, oppress people of color or just marginalize societies. Uh, thank you very much, James. Uh, wow, that's awesome. Um, I just loved uh, the way you opened up with the idea that being an anti-racist teacher is synonymous with being a good teacher. And, and I love that it wasn't you know, an excellent teacher or a superb, but just a good teacher. So that the idea is that every one of our teachers who are good teachers uh, are anti-racist. And that's, I love that idea. And I also enjoyed what you said about um, how it has to be an integral part of our life and how you have to live it outside the classroom and not just come into the classroom for the first time having uh, these intentions or ideas of being anti-racist, but that it's integral to your, to your life and how you live your life. So thank you very much for those comments. Uh, before I introduce our next speaker, I want to uh, ask a remind our, our viewers or invite our viewers to, to pose questions on the chat and, um, and go ahead and begin doing that now so that when we have some, a little bit of time at the end, we'll be able to uh, pose some of your questions to the panelists. So our, our next speaker uh, is uh, Ms. Jada Smith. And uh, as we said earlier, Jada is a seventh grade English and social science teacher. Uh, so Jada. Thank you for that introduction. Hello, everyone. Um, when I think about this question, how do we become anti-racist ELA teachers? Um, this has been a question that's always been in the back of my mind, or maybe in the front of my mind. It's just always been in my mind my entire childhood. Growing up, I was used to being in predominantly white spaces. I was always around white people, elementary, middle, and high school. I went to a predominantly white institution. I went to NC State. And then now at the school that I'm at today, I have majority white colleagues. And a good amount of the students that I teach 
are white. Now, when I think about my experience as a black teacher and as a black student in the past, race has never been something that I could ignore because as a black person, you can't ignore race. Race is something that literally affects every single aspect of your life. So I took that with me going into my own classroom. The one thing that I did wish of my white teachers, because let's face it, as it was mentioned earlier, the majority of teachers are white and they're typically white women. The one thing that I wished of my teachers growing up was to just listen. And that's something that Dr. Falter said um, that a big part of being an anti-racist ELA teacher is being able to listen. Now, this doesn't mean that you go and ask your black or people of color uh, POC students, hey, tell us what it's like to be this or share your experience. It's Black History Month, your black history, share this. Like you want to create an environment that students feel comfortable to willingly share. All students feel like your classroom is a place where they can be unapologetically themselves. And there's a lot of there's a lot of work that you have to do in order to create this environment. Um, I'm gonna get to that in just a moment, but when you're thinking about um, listening, this idea of listening, you're not listening to respond, you're listening to really absorb what you're hearing from your kids. You're really engaging with them and getting to know them as individuals. And you're reflecting on that, you're using it to influence and inspire your teaching every single day. A large frustration that I have with many of my friends and many of my colleagues is that a lot of people think that that one equity workshop or that one diversity training that you have to attend maybe once or twice a year, that's enough in order to say, okay, I am not racist. I am an anti-racist. First of all, those are usually mandatory. So and a lot of the times they're after school, so you're tired, you're ready to go home. A lot of people don't even put in the full effort into that equity training. So you're already going in with a closed mind. That's not enough for me. This, this shouldn't be enough for any teacher. It shouldn't be enough for any educator. Um, when you're thinking about being an anti-racist teacher, kind of to mirror what James was saying, you have to be an anti-racist person. I don't think you can go into this profession not thinking about your own experiences and thinking about some of the biases that you might hold. That's going to mean thinking about your past, thinking about your present. Who do you hang around with? What content do you consume on a day-to-day -day basis? If you work at a school that is majority minority students, but outside of, this, outside of the classroom, you're only around people who look exactly like you, whether or not you want to admit it, it does affect the way that you might behave or the, the way that you might treat students that are different from you in the classroom. So how do you combat this? You really have to look deep into yourself. You've got to do a deep analysis of your own biases, as I mentioned. You're going to have to do some additional reading. You're going to have to do some additional research. You're going to have to ask questions. One thing that is the most important is you're going to have to feel uncomfortable. That's something that a lot of people don't want. They don't want to feel like, oh, I might have been doing, I've been teaching for 15 years. I've been doing this for so long. Like, how are you going to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? You don't want to feel uncomfortable. And that's natural. No one wants to feel like that. No one wants to feel like they did something, they made a mistake. But being uncomfortable is like the first step. And you can make a lot of changes after you get over those uncomfy feelings at the very, very beginning. Um, you're going to have to reach into your pocket and buy some new resources. And we're used to reaching into our pockets. And when we were teachers, we, we have to reach into our own pockets and buy a lot of things. But you're going to have to look at maybe some books that you can read to improve yourself. And then when it comes to creating that classroom environment that is comfortable for all students where they feel like they can be themselves, you really have to choose those books and those resources that you know, they represent every single person in your class. Um, kind of going back to what Dr. Falter said too, 
you don't want to choose the resources that revolve around the trauma of that minority group. That's something that my, I personally just have a pet peeve about, but um, you have to think about what message that communicates. If, if you have a black student, they go to the classroom library. Yes, they see that there is maybe some diversity with the different, what the books are talking about. They might see that there are some black characters or there's a black story, but if it's not written by a black author, or if the story's about slavery, it's only about the civil rights movement, that's communicating to that student that maybe their story is only worth telling if it has that content, or that maybe their life is a lot of negative. And they don't wanna feel like that. You wanna try and include those stories and communicate to your black or POC students that you can fall in love too. White people aren't the only people who fall in love in stories. They're not the only ones who are wizards or detectives in a mystery story. Once you um, break away from this idea that white is the normal, that an American person is white, when, when they see that, when they see that you're putting in that effort, then they feel comfortable to be themselves around you. Um, just to kind of backtrack to what is required of you as an anti-racist ELA teacher, you will have to throw out some stuff. You may have to decide that some of the things that were given to you by the district that you technically have to do, you're going to have to supplement some things here and there. I had 90 minutes in my class last year, which is a lot of time. And I could cover what I was required to do. I could cover the standards that I was given while also supplementing some things that I felt could better serve every single one of my students. Overall, I think the most important thing that I want to stress and that I will say over and over again is that this is not a quick fix. This is not something, okay, I attended this webinar, I'm good, let me check it off my list. No, you actually have to do something now. You actually have to go out and you have to have conversations and you have to do some research. And um, just remember that this is constant. It's a constant cycle of listening, reflecting, making necessary changes. And if you're not willing to do that, you might have to choose a different profession. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jada. We appreciate your comments. Um, I particularly um, appreciate your insight for when you said that in order to be an anti-racist teacher, we need to be anti-racist people. And I think that that is poignant and I think everyone um, understands that and um, is, is trying to work towards, towards that. And as you said, this doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen quickly, but it's a process and it's a way of life. And as the paper says, it's a way of becoming. So thank you so much. We appreciate your insights. You're delightful. Um, next, we've got uh, Dr. Crystal Lee. She is going to be our last panelist and um, Dr. Lee, as I said, was one of the co-authors of the paper. So we're very interested in your insights, Crystal. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hilary Spires. So I am an assistant professor of English Ed here at NC State. And my research focuses on literacy and teacher education, community engagement, and historically and currently underserved populations. I also want to mention here that I am also the director of the Literacy and Community Initiative, a collaboration between the NC State College of Ed and the Friday Institute that is hosting this webinar. And um, it partners with community-based organizations that examine, empower, and amplify youth voices. And my co-director here is Dr. Picard here on this webinar. So we're really excited and glad to partner here together again. Um, and our initiative partners with three community organizations who are passionate about amplifying the voices of youth of color. So I mentioned all of this because it's going to come out in some of the things I'm going to say today. Um, I'm also a former high school English teacher and I'm very passionate about English language arts learning. So to answer the question, how do we become anti-racist ELA teachers? 
I need to situate my answers from my personal identity and my experiences. And so as an Asian American educator, I have been thinking of and reflecting of the ways in which Asians must stand up with the black community and speak up for black students. So I am a child of immigrant parents from Taiwan and I grew up speaking Mandarin Chinese at home and English outside of the home. So in a lot of ways, I grew up knowing that I was marginalized and different in my predominantly white public school. And Asians are in a difficult space in which we are often seen as model minorities or white adjacent. And this is a, I wanna say a very dangerous label that can be internalized among Asians and also taken up by others such as teachers who attribute such ideas to the Asian community or the Asian students. But this model minority status is a myth that can further do harm to the black community. This mythical status attributes power to one minority race over another while relegating all minorities to the margins. And this relegation and myth has been exposed in a hum in the height of the pandemic, as we see. We see that the model minority status is conditional as racist acts against Asians are also heightened during the COVID-19 crisis, as we can see in the news today. But particularly this mythical status can be amplified in school settings when grades and academic status are often attributed to stereotypes of Asians being good at math and science. So I wanna give you a short story, but I want an example as I internalized this myth as a high school student when I was recommended and placed in AP Calculus, despite the fact I was terrible at math. I mean, I'm an English education professor. I was expected to take the course as an Asian student, and I believe that I had to take it myself because I was Asian. I, as a student, had internalized such myths. My experiences then exposed questions for me as an educator. Some of these questions are, what assumptions and expectations do we have for our students of color? How can such myths be internalized by our own students? How do teachers perpetuate myths in dangerous ways that divide and endanger our students? And so as I think about how to be an anti-racist teacher, I reflect on these questions myself as well. I also think about how Asians ought to be even more vocal about how to stand with the Black community. So my very identity as an Asian American has been influenced by and built upon the challenges that Black Americans have gone through during the civil rights movement and beyond. So Asians need to speak up and speak out against racist acts done to the Black community. And at the same time, I also reflect on my own positionality and acknowledge the ways in which I have failed because I have internalized the model minority myth. And so I recently read this article over the weekend um, and on G it was published on June 25th in the Times. And it was entitled, I will not stand silent, 10 Asian Americans reflect on racism during the pandemic and the need for equality. And there's a quote that I, I wanna embody. And this quote says, I wanna be an active member of a distinct community that emerged from the tireless resistance of people of color who came before us. So therefore in our white paper, the document that um, we're, we're referring to here, I am most passionate about the first step that we lay out for teachers. And that is to reflect. And I think a lot of um, the uh, webinar participants here today have said that, but I want to really emphasize that because that is the first step. Um, positioning for learning to be an anti-racist teacher requires awareness of who you are in relation to your world. An acknowledgement that we all have biases. Um, like me, I'm a person of color, but I all have had biases, which is the first step towards dismantling them. So in our, in our white paper, we draw on questions written by Dr. Chibrone Howard, whom we cite, and he asks teachers to critically reflect on themselves. And I want to just leave you with these five practical questions, questions that he lays out that we write here, um, that, that I have asked myself and my own students in um, I'm teaching a summer course now that they have asked themselves this week too. And the five questions are this, the first one is, how frequently and what types of interactions did I have with individuals different from my own growing up? And I know myself, I, I didn't have that many. I grew up in a very predominantly white community. Um, and I grew up, and also I hung out with a lot of um, immigrant communities too. Who were the primary persons that helped shape my perspectives of individuals from different groups? How were those opinions formed? Who formed um, your perspectives? The third is, do I currently or have I ever harbored prejudiced thoughts towards people from different backgrounds? The fourth is, if I do harbor prejudiced thoughts, 
What effects do such thoughts have on students who come from those backgrounds? And that's important for a teacher to really reflect on. And the fifth, and this is something that we really have to be honest of ourselves, but do I create negative profiles of individuals who come from different racial backgrounds? And these questions are hard, um, but it is the first step that we acknowledge that we all have biases. And this is the first step towards dismantling it. So as we move on in this webinar towards questions, I encourage you to ask these questions too, as I'm asking them myself as a good place to start. Thank you, Heller. Thank you, Crystal. We appreciate your insights. <clears throat> and I'm really glad that you <clears throat> brought up the, this issue of uh, the model minority and, and what Asians and Asian Americans face in our country. And um, I applaud you for under, you know, analyzing and understanding your own position and then relating it to this very um, powerful time that we're in, in terms of our country and the, this moment in our history where people are becoming more aware of um, the, the very difficult situations that our people of color and our black folks are in on a daily basis. So thank you for that. It's um, very inspiring. Um, we're gonna take a few questions now. We've got a lot of questions from, we've got a lot of questions from the audience that are coming in. Um, Jose, I'll ask the first one and then maybe you'll, you can come up with the second one. So what we'll do is um, ask a question and then whoever feels comfortable answering it can um, volunteer to answer. How about that? Um, the first one is, how would you combat influence or narratives from the home as a teacher? Um, it's a sensitive flashpoint. So when you're deconstructing a narrative that a student might have been exposed to, um, different perspectives from what you're trying to put forth in the classroom, um, how, how does a teacher navigate that? Any insights? I think that's a hard one. You got one, Jada? Okay. Um, so I've taught language arts and social studies, both of them. Social studies is definitely where those kinds of conversations come up a lot more because you tend to talk about many social issues and what's relevant, current events, things like that. Um, when it comes to dealing with the home influence, obviously that's not something that you can just, you know, ignore. For me, I have a lot of, a lot of students who definitely are greatly influenced by what their parents, by what their grandparents, whoever it is who is at home is telling them. And it might um, directly contrast from what I believe. And, you know, it just might be completely different. It might be a whole different um, opinion. But the most important thing to try and give your student, especially in a social studies class, is kind of all perspectives and kind of let them make a decision for themselves. Obviously, like I said, they're very much influenced by their parent, but if we're talking about a current event, I give multiple sources, I give multiple um, viewpoints about this particular current event, then the student gets to look at what is being said, look at all of the different information and decide for themselves, okay, this is what I believe. Now, when they go home, they might tell their parents that they believes something entirely different, but at least I'm exposing them to something. Um, I definitely let everybody share their opinion. And if I have like kind of a little bit of an uproar of different, different, differing opinions in my classroom, there's a way to deescalate that. That's just going in with your classroom management. But as long as every kid feels comfortable to share their own opinion and they're comfortable with listening to other people's, then it really, it's, it's not typically a, a major problem for me. Um, I think it's just important to understand that we have to accept 
that there are differing opinions outside of the classroom and what you give them in the classroom, it will be impactful even if you feel like you're not making an impact. Oh, thank you, uh, Jane. And I think that sort of your response speaks to the, uh, the responsibility that we all have to just uh, to be uh, present, to be in the moment and to sort of um, even, you know, even if you might not say the right thing or do the right thing, at least you're listening and you're engaged and you're, you respond in some way. And I'd like to sort of follow up with a question sort of related to that. In the uh, white paper, the authors talk about curriculum violence. And um, I was wondering if uh, one of you could say something about that, you know, what is it? And then and specifically, if you could say, tell us how do um, good teachers respond to another type of curriculum violence, which are the uh, verbal and behavioral microaggressions that sometimes that frequently take place in our lives. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, I'll start. Curriculum violence is about the actions, the materials, the activities that um, harm our students, whether intentionally or not, um, that often um, dehumanize our students. And so some of the examples that we give in the paper are things like doing a slave simulation, asking students to take the perspective of a um, slave owner, um, a person who's been enslaved and write um, diary entries. I also see this happening when we talk about the Holocaust and taking on those perspectives as well. It also, curriculum violence could be um, allowing certain um, words in our classrooms of, actually reading out loud the N-word, which no teacher should be doing. And I wanna say that very strongly. We should not be saying that word in our classroom. Um, and it also has to do with things like the, the writing, the practices in our classroom and not allowing our students to, to use or speak in their vernacular to appreciate the language by not appreciating it, you're dehumanizing a part of someone's identity. So those are some of the things we talk about, but I'll let other people jump in. Um, thank you, Dr. Falk. I think I also want to um, follow up with what Dr. Picard was saying in terms of microaggressions. And so just to, so we're all in the same place, but microaggressions really um, usually are defined as brief or common daily verbal, behavioral um, communications that they're whether intentional or unintentional that might transmit hostile messages or negative messages. Um, and so I think even myself, I've been, um, you know, I've been guilty of that. Um, but I think a lot of ways it starts with understanding what kind of assumptions do we have of students. So even the idea that, um, for example, that example I gave, my teachers wanted to recommend me to AP calculus, that was not necessarily a, a bad thing in the sense that, but they had assumptions of who I am um, and some, and they could end up having negative consequences later on. But microaggressions in terms of assuming things of us students um, and that we say to them that might be negative um, in a sense. And so I think some of the curriculum violence um, and it, it's that word is kind of like, oh, we are in inflicting violence upon our students. And so some people do get uh, really, really scared of that in a lot of ways. But we also actually have to be honest with ourselves um, in thinking about um, sometimes the harm that we, we can unintentionally do. Um, and this takes a lot of self-reflection and acknowledgement that sometimes we do make, um, we do make mistakes, but then how do we change and move forward from that? Um, and not to say, and actually acknowledge that we did have faults, um, but move forward um, in the next lesson. Um, and I think if you, um, we might send our, our white paper out later, but there's a lot of um, resources that how to do that and some steps that we can do. Great, thank you. Thank you very much. Hello? Yeah, thank you, Crystal. Um, yes, um, I believe that we've made the link available for the white paper. If not, we will do that immediately after 
the webinar. And in the paper, there are uh, uh, excellent resources uh, for folks because we are getting a lot of questions about resources. Another comment um, that one of our participants has made is um, when teachers are looking for resources that we should be um, very careful not to overtax uh, black, brown, and indigenous uh, people of color uh, with asking for resources and asking for help because it can be very taxing and um, it, the, the emotional labor takes a, a toll on people. I don't know if um, anyone would be willing to address that particular issue because I know that it is a great concern and a, a lot of us are talking about that and how do we, how do we make progress without overburdening people of color? Would anyone like to address that? Um, I can, I can try and, and say something. Okay. <laughs> I Thank definitely you. think that it can be a bit emotionally exhausting to be that person that my white friends go to or that, you know, other white educators ask for information. Um, but being in my field, I feel like I'm, I'm more willing to share uh, various opinions get some information about this issue I really think you just have to kind of read the room and see it, you know is this person feeling uncomfortable how many times have I reached out to this person um do they look visibly irritated type thing um that's just yes you're going to potentially make some people uncomfortable you just have to really really just be empathetic and think, think about your minority friend or your minority colleague. There are so many different books at this point that you can read. So you don't necessarily have to ask a person. Um, but I, I, my recommendation would be to look at these articles, look at these books. And then when you're talking with minority friends or colleagues, just make sure that everything that you talk about with them isn't all about race or isn't like you don't want them to be like oh this is I'm only here I'm only valuable to this person because of my viewpoint on what's going on um just try and make sure that it's there's a balance there and then I feel like they'll be more willing to to be open with their own experiences but yes it can be taxing but it's kind of that's just what goes along with it in my opinion Thank you for, for sharing that and for reflecting on your own experiences and, and how you and sharing how you felt about, uh, you know, sort of finding yourself in that role of being the one who's responding to, to others on these issues. I'd like to go to a, a question from uh, the audience in, that I see in the, in the chat room here. Um, and this is a question from a doctoral student at North Carolina State University. and. Uh, this individual is wondering what plans, what things are the is the College of Ed doing to support specifically pre-service teachers of color and graduate students of color in this predominantly white space? Um, Jose, I can um, jump in here and uh, talk a little bit about that. And then uh, Michelle and Crystal may um, have some more information. I, I think I would start with going back to what James said. Um, you know, we're all learning, right? We're all learning and we're um, trying to do better. Um, uh, the college has uh, put out a statement that they want the college to be an anti-racist college, just the same way that we have done at the Friday Institute. And now I think it, it, it's all about action, right? It's all about taking action and finding our pathways forward. Um, I know that Dean um, Danowitz at the College of Education has uh, put several different things in place, um, committees and different groups so that we can start looking at our curriculum 
and systematically looking at the curriculum to make changes as well as um, be more assertive with um, recruitment in terms of people of color, both as students and as um, faculty. We know that we have far too few faculty of, of color in our college as well do, as, as does um, higher ed in general. So um, there are more concerted efforts now, I think, to, um, to try to attract uh, people of color. And we know that it's not just uh, trying to recruit, but it's about becoming the organization that you want to become so that people of color want to come to your organization. And so I think that those are all discussions that are going on and action plans are being developed. I don't know if Michelle or um, Crystal want to add anything. I think James wants to jump okay. in. Okay. Hi, James. Jump Hello. in. Hello. How's it going? Good. <laughs> um, so I agree. Thank you so much, Dr. Hillis Spires, for that. Um, and I think that the College of Education, NC State as a whole, but I think specifically the College of Education is definitely doing this work to really become an anti-racist college of education. And I, as an undergrad, as a Black undergrad, appreciate that very much. And I think as a Black undergrad and us being the minority within the College of Education and the college at large, that it is sometimes very difficult. Um, and I'm glad, again, that this is happening. Um, but, you know, I think we all agree that, like, a lot of these conversations are sometimes long overdue. So I think some of the things that I have seen that I have appreciated personally is when there are spaces created specifically for educators of color, um, which a lot of the staff and the faculty within the Student Success Center have been a part of doing. So I really appreciate that because I think a big part of recruitment is not just having, for example, me coming to a session like this and saying, hi, I'm here, I'm your token. And now you know that there are black educators, but more so when you get here, will you have a space here? Not are there people of color there, but when you get here, are there spaces where I can express, these are my struggles, these are my pains, or this is what it's going to look like as an educator of color. But I also think that when we have professors who are actively working to be anti-racist, I think that that is great. And I want honest professors, not even necessarily ones who claim to be at this peak of anti-racism, but rather, for example, I have to give some shine to Dr. Falter because she's one of my faves, but I think um, what Dr. Falter calls it are wobble moments. And she expresses that when you have these wobble moments, they're moments where you're uncomfortable, as Jada had mentioned, and they're they're very uncomfortable, but when professors express that, like, I struggle with this too, that's very comforting for me because I know that you're working on it. Um, so those are some things that I am very grateful for college education. Thank you, James. Anyone else want to uh, share a moment uh, here? Because we're going to wrap up. We've only got two minutes left. That went by fast. <laughs> Thank you, James and uh, Hiller for saying that. I think, um, I think one is the faculty is really important in College of Ed. Um, and faculty are professors who are also teachers. And so we actually have to follow the steps that we've all laid out. Um, and the steps are um, to reflect. The first one is what we, we, we said um, that many of us had said, some of those questions that I, I laid out, to reflect on ourselves. The second is to read. Um, professors, faculty need to read. Um, what does it mean to um, be an anti-racist educator, which means to be a good educator? And the third is to interrogate our curriculum. We have to change our curriculum as well in a lot of ways, especially teacher educators who are teaching teachers. Um, and so that is going to be an impact that influences students across all North Carolina public schools. Um, and the fourth is act. Um, and I think there's some steps that we lay out in our, um, in, in our paper, but one I'm really passionate about acting is amplifying student voices. And one is amplifying your um, undergraduate voices, your graduate voices too. Um, and so all of us as teachers, um, think about how do you learn from your students as well? And the fifth is repeat. 
Um, and so when we think we're done, we're not done. This is a lifelong journey um, and we're all going to be working towards it together. And I think uh, faculty at NC State are working towards that and hopefully we are going to be able to do that coming up too. Well, thank you so much to our panelists, um, Michelle, James, Jada, and Crystal, and to my co-host, Jose. <clears throat> this has been an enlightening conversation. I feel like that I've learned a lot and I have a lot more to think about and reflect on. And we just appreciate your willingness to articulate some of these issues so that others can benefit from them. And as we said, this is a, it's a lifelong process and we'll all be working on this for a long time to come, but um, this is a, a good way for us to have some ideas and to get started. I'm gonna close out now um, with a quote that so many of us know and rely on a lot, but it's a, it's a comforting quote for me by Maya Angelou. Do the best you can until you know better, then when you know better, do better. And I feel like that's what we're all trying to do now. And um, I appreciate everyone's commitment to this issue. We will close out now. And like I said, we've got um, some resources that you can go to and um, check those out as you continue your own journey. Thank you so much and have a great day.